Hello, and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, Episode 21, Battleship Potemkin. The Super 70 is a podcast meant to sync with the film we are discussing. You don't have to, though, and can go on listening without watching anything. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we are discussing before listening to the Super 70 podcast. You can find it on iTunes, SoundCloud, Himalaya, Google Play, Pocket Casts, Spotify, and my website at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. I will be using the 2010 Blu-ray from Kino Lorber, available on Amazon.com, but Battleship Potemkin has two versions for free on YouTube because the film is in the popular domain in the United States. I recommend the one hour and 13 minute version due to the English subtitles. However, you need to have a YouTube subscription so you do not have to sit through advertising. If you do not have a YouTube subscription, the advertising will throw the commentary off sync. If you click play on the Blu-ray and the YouTube video now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. Battleship Potemkin premiered at the Bolshoi Theater in December 1925, and it was the first time any movie premiered there. It was a state affair with tons of Communist Party officials and the veterans of the 1905 revolution in attendance, as it was the 15th anniversary of that revolution. So to clear the matters up before we start, the Battleship Potemkin was a mutiny that began the revolution of 1905, not the revolution of 1917. Hopefully, we'll get to distinguish those two eventually. But in 1905, the sailors on the Potemkin mutinied over their living conditions, you could say. And that was just one mutiny in a revolution that spread all over Imperial Russia. And we'll talk about the tangible effects the revolution had later. The intertitles, of course, are very important. Revolution is war. Of all the wars known in history... It is the only lawful, rightful, just, and truly great war. In Russia, this war has been declared and began. Lenin said this in June of 1905. That month, the Potemkin was stationed in the Tendra Spit near the Crimea, what is now southern Russia, but was for seven decades southern Ukraine. The Tendra Spit juts into the Black Sea, and the Potemkin was a battleship assigned to the Black Sea's fleet. This is Alfonsi Matyushenko and Grigory Vakulinchuk, who were sailors on the Potemkin. Matyushenko was the quartermaster, so he was responsible for feeding the sailors. Vakulinchuk was a common sailor, but he was a revolutionary through and through. And here we're going to have to get into a little subtle history. Because Vakulinchuk and Matyushenko were not communists. There were communists on board the Potemkin, and of course, there were communists in the revolutionary movement in Russia. But 
the Communist Party was just one movement in the whole revolutionary movement against the Tsar of Russia in 1905, Nicholas II. So although they were revolutionaries and they were totally devoted to the cause, they did not answer to Lenin in exile or to any other party member. That's important to keep in mind because this is a propaganda picture, to be sure. And with Triumph of the Will and perhaps Mrs. Miniver, it's the most successful propaganda film ever made. And there's a myth that's been created around it, and we need to keep, need to keep it in perspective as we appreciate the genius of what we're watching. I hate to state the obvious, but film is a visual medium, just like music is an auditory medium. I feel like I have to state that because the music in this film, although it's important, it's really second fiddle to the image. This is the silent era, and would be for another four years, and up to now, cinematographers were really just working on getting that image on screen in focus, and not much else. And that changes eventually with people like Griffith and Intolerance, which we'll get into later, and with Edward Teese, the cinematographer of Potemkin, and Eisenstein's other five movies. And we're going to count them off because there's a progression. Strike, 1923, Potemkin, 1925, October, 1927, which was to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of the October Revolution. And then there's this 10-year period where Eisenstein is busy as a bee, but he's not making any movies. And part of it is he's teaching and directing Moss film, and he's in Mexico, and he's being a, a gay man in Soviet Russia, and there's, there's purges there, right? So he's got to be careful. He didn't direct another movie until Alexander Nevsky in 1938. And then, of course, Ivan the Terrible Parts 1 and 2. And Tease is right next to him the whole time planning everything. He's like Eisenstein's right-hand man. And he's in on every theory and note taken the entire time. Tease is really, really important. Probably just as important as Eisenstein is. And you've probably never heard of him. Think of it this way. Six out of six of the Soviet films that you've heard about, he's shot. The mutiny on the Potemkin did not happen in a vacuum. I'm not going to go into great detail. I want to get into the film and the image and the editing, but just very briefly, <laughs> it's going to take too long. Uh, the Tsar bumbled his way into a war with Japan and then lost that war in two huge battles. One was at sea, the Battle of Tsushima, and another one that was on land um, near Manchuria. At Tsushima, what was left of the Russian Navy was obliterated in three hours. And Matt Yushchenko, even though that he's, he's on the Potemkin and the Potemkin is in the Black Sea, he's nowhere near the Pacific, he knows he's lost dozens of friends. And the common people of Russia took to the streets. They organized millions in a national strike that went on and on and on. And the sailors of Potemkin, even though they've been at sea, they know the whole country is up in arms over the lost war with Japan, and they're very motivated. They could be next, if you get what I'm saying. And they're not interested in dying off the coast of Japan for a czar sitting up in his summer palace counting how many pheasants he shot. They don't give a shit. So they're right for the revolution. All they need is a spark. Even a dog wouldn't eat this, right? And here's the spark. Matyushenko sent a party to the coast to pick up some beef to make some borscht for the sailors. And the sailor that he sent was named Alexiev, And he was with an officer by the name of Makarov and the ship Dr. Golenko. And there was a strike in the city, and the gunfire was going off. And Golenko made him nervous, and he just wanted to buy the beef and get back to the ship. And Alexeyev complained to Golenko that, you know, the beef that they're buying, this is shit. Makarov basically told him, shut up, and ordered Golenko to determine that the beef was okay to eat. Well, obviously, it wasn't okay to eat. It had maggots all over it. 
And when the stuff hit the deck, everybody on the side of the ship lost their collective shit. They were absolutely pissed that they were being treated this way. And worse, being told a blatant lie. It's, you know, like, this meat's fine. And it was like a metaphor to Matyushenko and Vakulinchek. This rotting meat that they were told to eat was fine. To them, it was like being sold the idea of a czar. Oh, you know, autocracy is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Well, to them, it was just as rotten. So Eisenstein's playing with a little bit of a metaphor here. And even with the eyeglasses, right? Like, you see? See, everything's fine. This is just blatantly lying to you. And you can wash it off with brine. It'll be fine. It's, you know, you can disinfect yourself. Just inject it, and the COVID will go away, right? This is like the worst attempt at a Jedi mind trick that I've ever seen. It's just like fake news. It's like when the president gets up and says everything's fine, there's no virus. And you know there's a virus because people are dying, and it just goes on. And he's lying to your face, and you can see that it's all lies. And that's maggots on the meat, and everybody knows the meat is rotten. And why are you saying that it's not? And the truth of it is the officers of the Potemkin, they were never there to be concerned about their men. They were there to control their men and use them for certain death in any way the czar saw fit. Not too different than the White House, if you think about it. So that's how the administration thinks about this country. We're all expendable, especially if we live in a blue state. Now, Matt Yushchenko and Vakulinchuk saw the meat for themselves, and they weren't particularly surprised at the maggot situation. But they were surprised how the crew reacted. And like a lot of the situations in revolutionary circumstances, the best propaganda is the bad decisions of the elite. Matt Yushchenko and Vakulinchuk and the Bolsheviks could have beat their drum all they wanted, and nothing was ever going to happen, really, as long as the autocracy could behave within a margin. And Potemkin proves, the Borscht situation proves, that the autocracy as the Navy represents it could no longer operate inside these margins. It had become so oppressive that even the soldiers and the sailors, and sailors are soldiers, right? Even they couldn't be treated any lower. The next step was to be put into a gulag or shot. And in Potemkin's case, they were to be shot, absolutely shot, on the orders of the captain, on the deck of the ship, the man who's supposed to care for them. And in the days leading up to the morning of the bad borscht, was the crew finding out that 40 of the Potemkin sailors were going to be reassigned to another ship when they made port. And this was a huge deal. The Black Sea Fleet was riddled with revolutionaries, and the officers knew it. So when they identified them, they tried to break them up and demoralize them the best they could, assign them to other ships. So Vakulinchuk calls a, a Bible meeting, which in reality is a, a meeting to discuss the revolution, right? And they say, we're going to have to do something and soon because we're going to lose the ability to take the ship if something bad goes down. And little did they know that something was going to happen so soon. This whole short montage is supposed to show what hardworking and loyal sailors the Potemkin crew was, which was true or they wouldn't be on the Potemkin. The Potemkin was the apex of a rebuilding program for the Black Sea Fleet after its complete destruction in the Crimean War. It was the flagship. It was faster, better protected, more technologically advanced, and armed with stronger guns than any other battleship in the fleet, even by the standards of other Western fleets. The Potemkin was a badass, and the Russian Navy didn't exactly know how they were going to take it after it was mutinied. So things escalated, just like you see here on screen, right? And Captain Golikov basically ordered his men to stop complaining and just eat the fucking borscht. And his sailors refused. 
They refused, and so he called out the Marines, the soldiers on the boat who were for man-to-man combat as opposed to the ship-to-ship combat the sailors were trained for. And Golikov threatened them by bringing out a tarpaulin, a tarp, and having it strung across the deck. And this was originally for execution, so no blood would get on the deck of the ship. And so when Bakulinchuk saw this tarp, he was just furious because he knew what it meant. It meant that his fellow sailors were going to be shot in cold blood. And he wasn't going to have it. And he and Matyushenko and a few others, they raided the armory and they grabbed as many revolutionaries as they could along the way. And they ran back to the deck and they challenged the captain face to face. And one of the sailors fired a warning shot. And then that was it. The mutiny was on. And whoever survived the first few minutes of the mutiny was crucial as to how history would play out. Because Potemkin is seen as this proof positive moment in Russian history that the people were not happy under the czar. That the proletariat who were serving the czar did care about what happened to their country and could overthrow their officers if they wanted to. And this was huge. This meant the Russian military was unreliable. And in that context, you see the First World War is happening just nine years later. You begin to understand that it was inevitable, the Russian Revolution. It was inevitable. It was going to happen. Because the people of Russia were so oppressed and abused that in a modern world, they just cracked. And all hell broke loose. And the Potemkin was lost. I guess now is as good a time as any is to get into montage. Since Eisenstein is known for his work on montage and the development of editing and cutting a film together, there were other Soviet directors and editors before Eisenstein. He wasn't the first one. He was standing on the shoulders of giants, if you will. And he was able to do amazing things in the editing room because of their work. One of these giants is Liev Kuleshov. Kuleshov had a theory about montage. So, montage. Okay, so this is the early days of film, right? And a lot of the art house stuff is coming out at the time, just like now. It all came from France. So, the world has learned to use a lot of French words to describe stuff happening in cinema. Cinema itself is a French word. And so is mise-en-scene what you see in the shot. And the French had two words to describe editing, which was coupier, the physical cutting of the film, and the montier, which is meant to edit, to physically put two coupés together. And that's called montage. Now, before you get confused, let's remember that meaning has changed over time, that this word montage has come to mean something very different. Before you look for the Kuleshov effect on YouTube, go ahead and find a video called The 10 Best Film Montages of All Time, and it'll have the montage from Citizen Kane when Kane tells us Kane and his wife are having breakfast, and they age over the breakfast 30 years and 3 minutes. And then there's the murder montage at the end of The Godfather when the Corleone family takes out all their enemies in just a few minutes. One of my favorites is actually the love montage in Chasing Amy when Holden and Alyssa fall in love. These are all what we call montages today, but those are not what Kuleshov and Eisenstein were thinking when they thought montage. They thought of the process of editing as a whole. The entire editing process was montage, and you have to put yourself in that frame of mind to get coupe and monte together the right way. Okay. And... It's fitting because this is a Kuleshov effect happening right now with the sailor in his plate. How does he feel about the plate? So Kuleshov, he's experimenting with montage, and he has this theory about montage, which it was 
A shot in isolation can be manipulated when edited with other shots, like the sailor's face and the plate, two different shots. Kuleshov meant psychologically manipulated or emotionally manipulated. So the audience will derive more from the meaning of two completely different shots, the soldier's face and the plate, edited together sequentially than if they were just apart. So one of the things that Kuleshov did was he took a dude and put him in a room and told him not to smile. Don't laugh. Don't frown. Don't look pissed off. Don't do anything. Complete stoicism. Don't look like you have any emotion on your face at all. No fear, no hope, nothing. And he filmed this guy. Then Kuleshov filmed a bowl of milk. And then he filmed a dead child in a coffin. And then he filmed a woman lying down on a couch looking kind of amorous. And he showed each two-shot montage to his students at Sovfilm. That's the Soviet Film Institute. And I'm not making that up. Eisenstein taught at Moscow, the Moscow Film Cooperative. Literally the organ by which the Communist Party made movies in Moscow. They had one in Leningrad, too. Less film. Anyway, his students saw this guy's face, and they saw the bowl of milk, and they thought, he's hungry. Even though he didn't act at all. And then they saw the montage of the same dude's face with the same expression on it, and then the child in the casket, and they thought, grief. And it was the same exact shot of the dude's face. And so then the third montage, a different audience, had the same shot of the dude, and the third time, it was this woman reclining on the couch, and the students said, well, he's feeling desire. All of that came from this dude's face, which didn't change. That's the Kuleshov effect. And sometimes you can turn a bad movie into a good film by using the Kuleshov effect to your advantage. And sometimes shit is just shit. And no amount of montage can save it. Just watch Battlefield Earth. So it's the interaction of these two shots cut together, like all these soldiers standing and then the close-up of Golikov, right? That's what makes the film. So in essence, he was saying uh, that it wasn't the performance that makes the film. It's the cut. It's not the reaction that you get from the first shot or even the second shot. It's the reaction you get after seeing the two shots together and you infer from it. Take this for example. Captain Golikov is disciplining his troops. We see him in this very erect posture, pumping his fist. And this is silent film, so obviously we don't really know what he's saying, especially if we can't lip-read Russian. And this is followed by a second shot of, what do you see? A ship's crow nest. Other sailors, the crow's nest again, with bodies hanging from it, and then the officer's positive reaction. Now, we know what's happening here because we're inferring from the past cuts that the crew is unhappy and not eating, and the captain thinks the crew is being insubordinate, and he's giving this trunk speech about how he's going to have them all hung or shot if they don't fall in line. But instead, you could have that same footage of the captain giving that speech, and you could choose different cuts to follow it. Imagine if you changed the cuts to the sailors cheering at the end of a fight like they do then your impression of the captain as a character or the story as a whole changes completely. So, with the same footage, you can turn one man from a bad guy to a good guy. That's the Kuleshov effect. Eyeline is also important in the Kuleshov effect. So let's go back to that bowl of milk and the dude staring stoically. Okay, The shot of the dude is straight on and he's looking almost into the camera and then the shot of the bowl of, of soup or milk or whatever, it's straight on the table. And the implication from that two shot structure is the dude is looking right at the bowl of soup. So eyeline is everything. 
if the bowl was askew in the picture, you wouldn't be as certain that that's what he was looking at. What is there anything else on the table, et cetera, et cetera. So if you have an eye line that does not match your montage, then your audience might get confused. And if you do that repetitively, they will definitely get confused. So in your first shot, if you have an actor looking over your shoulder, your second shot should pick up what he's looking at. And if it doesn't, if it's the actor he's talking to in a reverse shot, then that will confuse people. And if you don't believe me, just watch Suicide Squad. Now look at the eye line here. Golikov is looking at a sailor straight across from him in black coats, officers, and behind him are sailors in white jackets. And over to his right are other sailors wearing white. Eisenstein is establishing geography. And we know because we see this group of sailors in white that this is the group that's in trouble. And Golikov was looking right at them, left to right. The sailors were on the left side of the ship. You can see here he's looking right at them. So you know that when he talks to them where they are. And if he were looking in any other way in the next shot, you'd be confused, as confused as this group of sailors that are waiting to die. You could look at eyeline all day. While the revolution starts here, let's revisit the cinema, or as they say in the early Soviet Union, the cinematograph. Cinema, by this stage, was only 20 years old, really, meaning narrative storytelling. And the large breakthrough in narrative storytelling was continuity, meaning everything took place in a sequence. And you really couldn't break the sequence or it would confuse your audience. This was in the early days of film in which audience were, audiences were absolutely entranced by the silver screen. And they really didn't understand what they were watching, and that it wasn't real, it wasn't reality. So a cowboy could shoot a blank bullet into the direction of the camera, and people would shout and scream in the theater thinking they would get shot. A train would come straight towards the camera, and people in the audience would get up and move to get out of the way of the train. The first use of directional editing was done in a British film called Fire, 1901. James Williams, the director, showed firemen coming into a burning house using a ladder to get to the second floor. And then he cut to inside the second floor room. But the camera was facing the opposite way, 180 degrees. And most audience members got it. But some, because they had not seen anything like that before, they were confused. They didn't know what was going on. How could the camera just jump into a second story building simultaneously? It seems so simple now, but back then... It wasn't so simple. People were really pushing the theories of film into the practical applications of the technology that was available. What can you do with a camera? And 20 years later, when a lot of that had been figured out, Eisenstein starts asking, well, now, what can we do with a camera? What can we do in the editing room? And we're going to watch this and we're going to find out. Cutting a film to jump from one shot to another really disguises what the film crew does in order to convey the story. Until the fire in 1901, film was, just my opinion, folks, pretty boring. You take a drama, any drama, like a stage play, and you'd act it out, and the only time that you cut was to show a title card or an intel title with words on it so you could have some dialogue. 
By the time you get to Birth of a Nation in 1914, you've got a lot of different types of cuts. One type is action cutting. When you cut in at something happening on screen and it shows it from a different angle, it quickens the moment. Watch Raiders of the Lost Ark when Indy throws his gun in his briefcase in front of Marcus. That's an action cut. There's also an eyeline cut when you show what someone is looking at. Jimmy Stewart does this a lot in Rear Window when there's cross-cutting, when you're cutting back and forth between two pieces of action. Luke Skywalker flying around the Death Star is cross-cut with Princess Leia fretting about the Battle of Endor in the control room back on Yavin 4. When I started learning about film, Eisenstein was portrayed as this pioneer genius who saw things in cinema that others didn't. And he was this great visionary. But one of the problems that the Soviet Union had in its infancy, and we're talking about Russia before it was even the Soviet Union, right? This time period after the October Revolution in 1917, but before the Russian Civil War is won and the Soviet Union is declared. In that time period, about the time that Battleship Potemkin comes out, it's still Russia. And anyway, one of the problems that they had in the early Soviet Union and would have for decades is shortages. And this included shortage of silver nitrate, which is what film was made from. So the going theory was the reason Eisenstein was able to invent these genius theories of montage was because he had to. He had almost no film to work with. So he had to do something in order to tell a story. So he made it a part of the story that you would just see these cuts, these montage sequences. Necessity is the mother of invention. And if you look at anything Orson Welles did after The Lady from Shanghai, you know that that's true. Eisenstein invented montage because he had to. Now, whether or not anyone else would have done it, I don't know. That's a separate question. Eisenstein used several different new methods of editing, all in the same film. Some of these had been done before, but none of them had been used all at once and to such great effect, and you know, never to such great effect. So these five different film theories of editing are called metric, rhythmic, tonal, overtonal, and intellectual. And I'm going to try to find examples of all of them here. Great foreshadowing with the flag just passed. You'll definitely see another flag of a different color again. So this is after the Battle of Tsushima, which we already talked about. And some of the sailors on the Potemkin had lost mates in that battle, like I said. But there was another battle in Mukden on Chinese soil against the Japanese. And this was the largest land battle between the Franco-German War of 1870 and the First World War. And it was... It was the largest battle that anyone had taken place between the two world wars. And in the Battle of Mukden, the Russians lost about 90,000 men. And just think about that. Almost 100,000 men died. And that's going to reverberate around Russia, even worse than Tsushima in a lot of ways, because the loss magnifies the horror. And to be sure, and that massive loss starts turning not just the people against the czar, who doesn't give a shit about their sons or their brothers, but it also turns the army against the czar. 
Matt Yushchenko and Vakulinchuk knew this, that the strikes and the battles and the popular will eventually would coalesce. It would germinate. It would roll and roll until the storm was just too much. And the military as a working class, not as an officer class, but as an armed proletariat, right? They, they knew that it would be too much. So we can look at Potemkin as this small episode. And Eisenstein was smart to keep the focus on just the ship and the crew. But remember, there's much more at stake here than just this ship. All of Russia was in pain. And Potemkin was what a lot of people thought was going to be the start of something lasting and permanent. And maybe it was, it just took another 12 years than people thought it would take. And if you have not already pieced it together, religion takes a horrible beating in Potemkin and really any ideologically Soviet film. The Russian Orthodox Church, or ROC or Rock as it's known, was unashamedly pro-Tsar. In fact, it still is. When the Romanov corpses were found and exhumed, they were interred in a royal burial ceremony in an Orthodox cathedral in St. Petersburg. There was a priest on every ship back then, and in the fleet, you're talking about dozens of priests, not just to look after the spiritual health of the men, but because the church was so ingrained in Russian society, they were really there as the enforcers of the autocracy. So as long as the ROC was spiritually supporting the Tsar's regime, then it was seen as just as much of an oppressor of the Russian people as the Tsar was. And so it had to be destroyed. And that's why there's this fight with the priest that really does not make the ROC look very good. But they hold back from killing him. Even by 1925, there were still tons of faithful in Russia, and you could make an anti-religious statement to be sure, but you didn't want to inflame opinions. Eisenstein wasn't stupid. And I'm sure that you noticed during this action sequence, the mutiny, that the cuts are fast and quick. Obviously, if you decrease the time in between the cuts, you're going to quicken the pace. And if you up the beat of the music, it'll have a dramatic effect on how you perceive time. Both of these things are happening here. So let's count between the cuts real quick. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, 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 two, one. Right, that's the inner title. So you you had a whole bunch of one-second shots until you got to the worms, and he stayed on the worms one more second to make the emphasis. You can do this for the entire film. I've done it. I've even tried to average it out, but I couldn't commit the time to finish it. But I'm sure that other editors have, and I'm sure that there's someone who's counted how many cuts there are in this film. But you get the meaning. I'm, I'm going to bring this up again when the film slows down, and we'll count the cuts again and see how the shots add up in terms of time. Eisenstein outlined five different ways to edit a film that could change the mood or tone of the direction of your picture based on these cuts, and some of it's based on the timing between the cuts, all relying on the Kuleshov effect. And like I said before, those five ways are metric, rhythmic, tonal, overtonal, and intellectual. So let's take metric cutting first. When you're cutting in a metric style, you choose a certain time period or actually the number of frames in a shot and you cut based on that rate regardless of what your subject is doing in the shot in order to establish a rhythmic system or a standard cadence to your audience and your audience gets used to the rhythm and when they do that you can change gears you can speed up or you can slow down and the audience is in step with you 
This happens in the mutiny scene we just watched when most of the cuts were one-second cuts, sometimes two-second cuts. Occasionally, there were three-second cuts, but a four-second cut was abnormal. That's when they wanted you to focus really hard on something. That's how you cut for action. You see this a lot in films, particularly in Dark City, a film that Roger Ebert loved the shit out of. There's really fast cuts in the beginning of that movie as the protagonist is trying to figure out who he is and where he is and what's going on. Those cuts might be too fast, actually. And if there's nothing going on, say in the scenes coming up when Vakulinchuk's body is being taken to Odessa, it's a long shot. And when people are visiting his body, you'll see some long takes, much longer than the action scenes. And that's to slow you down. It might not be at the same frame rate every time, but it's close. Like the shot of them bringing Vakulinchuk's body out of the water. That's a really long cut compared to the ones that preceded it. Or this one, they're taking his body to shore. And that's Eisenstein and his editor getting you to run and to walk and then to stand and then to run again. He's getting you used to the pace of the film. Pretty brilliant. So count with me on this next one. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five. See, he's focusing on Vakulinchuk's body. And there's an 18-second cut in here, right? There's a four-second cut. There's an intertitle. There's a six-second cut. It goes on like this. One, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. See, that was all one cut of Wakulinchuk's body. So it's very obvious that Eisenstein wants you to focus on that, contemplate it. He wants you focused on that body and what it means. And now he's establishing the economy of Odessa and the workers of Odessa and the trade of Odessa. And he's doing the same thing. He's focusing on this ship. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one, two, three. Four, five, six, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three. So you're looking at majority four, six second cuts. He's focusing on the ships. There's not a lot of movement. The ships are just sitting in water. 
but he's getting you used to that pace. Now, in strict metric cutting, you say things like, we're going to have a three-second cut no matter what happens for the next minute. And if you look at that trailer for uh, Logan, where they use Johnny Cash's song, um, Hurt, that's a good indication of uh, metric cutting. So you notice how the cuts here are not really uniform. So during the battle, they were mostly following a metric cutting style, but here we're arranging more depending on what we're focusing on. If a Kulinchek's body was in the shot, we were waiting forever because he's dead and he's not going anywhere and like the ships and that's that. And then there was the sleepy nature of the shots of all the ships in the fog and the low light in the morning and everything was at a slow pace visually. So the cuts, even though they're a little bit slower than the battle because there is no action, they seem longer. And then maybe because the fog and the low light ties them all together. And that is called tonal montage. The low light is going to blur your vision. The fog is going to blur your vision. He's going to take you from one cut of one to one cut of the other. This is technically the third type of montage, but it came next in the movie, so I skipped the second one, rhythmic montage. And I am hope I'm not confusing you when I do that. Eisenstein calls tonal montage and what he described as, quote, movement in a wider sense. The concept of movement embraces all effects of the montage piece. Here, montage is based on the characteristic emotional sound of the piece, the general tone of the piece, unquote. So let's break that down. Think of two shots that share the same thing in common. Think of The Revenant when Leonardo DiCaprio is breathing heavy in the snow and his breath fogs up the camera. And then we see fog in the mountains and the clouds in the mountains and the clouds mimic the fog. The fog mimics, mimics its breath. That's total montage for for instance, in this montage, you're going to see a lot of people walking and you see a lot of bridges. The pace is the same and the structure is the same, but they are different shots all cut together that have the same music. That's tonal montage. There are an endless amount of films that use this. A lot of it is used as scene transitions or flashbacks. At the end of Age of Innocence, light shimmers off a window and hits Daniel Day-Lewis in the face. Then you cut to a memory he's got of the sun glinting off the water when he's enjoying the company of his favorite female friend. That's tonal montage. If two people were working alone in separate offices, even though these those offices are in separate buildings, and you cut between the two, you're relating the tone of both of those shots. Their loneliness is the tone of both of those shots. War films are filled with tonal montage. Apocalypse Now, Willard is lying in his bed and the fan makes a thumping sound, cut to a chopper flying out his window, right? Just a few minutes later, Willard, he's in the shower, he's screaming, cut to a chopper landing in the field, tonal montage. My God, the thin red line, all over with tonal montage. So again... When Matt Yushchenko brings Vakulinchuk's body to shore and there's fog all over the place, tonal montage. Long staircase, long pier, long road we're walking down, tonal montage. If you want to look at shot composition, just look at these shots of the pier in Odessa Harbor. This is amazing shot composition, and it really reminds me of Dunkirk. 
And it is also eerily similar to Ivan and Terrible Part 1. Specifically, the people walking in a long line off into the snow. In 1929, Eisenstein wrote, The shot is by no means an element of montage. The shot is a montage cell. Just as cells in their division form a phenomenon of another order, the organism or embryo, so on the other side of the dialectical leap from the shot, there is montage. By what then is montage characterized, and consequently its cell, the host? By collusion, by the conflict of two pieces in opposition to each other. By conflict, by collusion. So montage is conflict, unquote. So let me say that again. According to Eisenstein, montage is conflict. Spoken like a true communist. There's tons of tonal montage here, but we need to get into the second type of montage, rhythmic. Remember, we went on, we went over this with tonal, which is third. We'll get back to tonal later, but let's focus on rhythmic because one of the most important scenes in cinema history is coming up. Eisenstein described rhythmic cutting. He said the actual length, quote, the actual length does not coincide with a mathematically determined length of the piece according to a metric formula. Here, its practical length derives from the specifics of the piece and from its planned length according to the structure of the scene, unquote. Think about car chases and how they cut action together, like the one in the French Connection. Think about dialogue scenes, especially the longer ones, like Vincent and Mia at Jackrabbit Slims in Pulp Fiction, or Jack and the narrator talking over beers in Fight Club, Jack chasing Danny through the hedge maze at the end of The Shining. It's an excellent example. The cut is based on what is happening in the shot and when the action is over. Metric does not care about the action in the shot. It's going to cut anyway. And all the cuts of these people crying over the Kulinchuk, you guessed it, tonal montage. But it also goes back to rhythmic. The Odessa step sequence, which is coming up soon, is the classic example of a rhythmic montage. Eisenstein wrote about it. Quote, The Odessa step sequence in Potemkin is a clear example of this. In in this, the rhythmic drum of the soldier's feet as they descend the steps violates all metrical demands. Unsynchronized with the beat of the cutting, this drumming comes in offbeat each time, and the shot itself is entirely different in its solution with each of these appearances. The final pull of tension is supplied by the transfer from the rhythm of the descending feet to another rhythm, a kind of downward movement, the next intensity level of the same activity, the baby carriage rolling down the steps. The carriage functions as a directly progressing accelerator of the advancing feet. The stepping descent passes into a rolling descent. Unquote. Overtonal montage is pushing tonal montage to the next level. And this is where Eisenstein's idea, his political idea of film, by which its very nature is a Soviet idea of film, is really felt in force. Say you film a child in a cradle. Cut. Now you see a sunrise. Cut. Now you see a flower opening its petals. Cut. What do you derive from those in a series of cuts? Birth. Life. New beginnings. Something along those lines. You infer. A very good example of this is what I found on YouTube. Uh, Huge spoilers here from Harry Potter, by the way. 
the death of Dumbledore. Cut to Snape saying Avada Kedavra, which we know is the death curse. Cut to Dumbledore getting hit by the curse. Cut to Harry looking mildly upset, in my opinion. Cut to Snape giving the what have I done look. Cut to Dumbledore falling to a certain death. Do we really need to see Dumbledore's body to know that he's dead? No, because we inferred it from the series of cuts. But modern film being what it is, we're going to see his body anyway because we need closure. So thanks, JK. Now, intellectual montage is the king daddy of Soviet political thought and cinema. It is literally the juxtaposition of two otherwise unrelated ideas to create a third idea in your mind. So not only can you infer, but you can pick up a new window or a metaphor or a pun. That doesn't sound too hard, does it? Okay, so by far the most fucked up intellectual montage I have ever seen is, spoilers again, the end of North by Northwest. Cut, Eva Marie Saint is hanging off a cliff. Cut, Cary Grant says, you can make it. Cut, Eva Marie says, no, I can't make it. Cut, Cary Grant says, come on up, if you get my meaning. Cut. We are magically transported from the cliff to a railroad, railroad car where Cary Grant is helping Eva Marie Saint into a bunk bed. Cut. We see a train going through a tunnel. What is the metaphor that you're picking up on? Well, if he didn't get the innuendo on orgasm, using the cliff, the grunting, the word come, or the bunk bed, you should have gotten the enormous phallic train moving through the tunnel, which was, of course, a metaphor for a vagina. The red flag which everyone is cheering on now, and you'll see again, was not the first time color was introduced in the silent era. Film had been tinted and individually painted before, but in this case, each frame of each copy of this film had to be hand-painted, and the first few hundred times they did it, it looked more pink than red. Red was the color of revolution from the days of the French Revolution, and was not wholeheartedly associated with communism by 1905, but it sure as shit was by 1917. Most montage is not as complicated as those famous five forms. We just watched a very successful montage of the workers in Odessa walking through the town, and we got a great sense that they're all good people who care about their neighbors and their country, and they're all greatly patriotic Russians who are common people. Really, it looks like a Marxist dream. And you'll see this repeated in pretty much every Eisenstein film, but particularly in his first three, especially October. Ivan the Terrible and Alexander Nevsky center more on a character, for sure, but you'll see the people represented in those similar terms as well. Go ahead and pick those up on Criterion 3-pack if you can find it. Now, coming up is going to be the most famous part of the film, and Eisenstein is breaking convention. Normally in three acts, the biggest and the most famous moment is the third act, but not in Potemkin. It's the Odessa Steps, the second act, and he's very specifically playing the shot by shot, and he really focused on themes and movement and the theme of movement and where it's going. To the left, of course. Let's take a look at Eisenstein's deconstruction of the sails and the Odessa ships. Excuse me, the Odessa steps. We'll start with the yalls, the small boats that visit the battleship. Look how happy people are. Okay. Quote, this sending of greetings is constructed on a cistich cross-cutting of two themes. One, the yalls are speeding towards the battleship. Two, the people of Odessa watching and waving. At the end of the two themes are merged. The composition is basically in two planes, depth and foreground. Alternatively, the themes take a dominant position. 
advancing to the foreground and thrusting each over each other by turns to the background. The composition is built on one, on a plastic interaction of both these planes within the frame, and two, on a shifting line and form in each of the three planes from frame to frame by montage. In the second case, the compositional play is formed from the interaction of plastic impressions of the preceding shot in collusion or interaction with the following shot. Here, the analysis is of the purely spatial and linear directions. The movement of the composition takes on the following course. 1. The yaws and movement. A smooth, even movement parallel with the horizontals of the frame. The whole field of vision is filled with theme. There's a play of small vertical sails. 2. An intensified movement of the yaws of theme 1, the entrance of theme 2, contributes to this. Theme 2 comes to the foreground with the severe rhythm of the vertical motionless columns. The vertical lines foreshadow the plastic distribution of the coming figures in 4, 5, etc. Interplay of the horizontal wakes and the vertical lines of both sails and columns. The yawl theme is thrust back in depth. At the bottom of the frame appears the plastic theme of the arch. 3. The plastic theme of the arch expands to the entire frame. The play is affected by the shift in the frame's content, from vertical lines to the structure of the arch. The theme of verticals is maintained in the movement of the people, small figures moving away from the camera. The yawl theme is thrust completely into the background. 4. The plastic theme of the arch finally moves into the foreground. The arc formation is transposed to a contrary solution. The contours of a group are sketched, forming a circle. The parasol emphasizes the composition, and to me, the parasol is just instantly reminds me of the guy with the umbrella in Dealey Plaza and Oliver Stone's JFK. It's like a symbol for something. Something's about to get hot, and it spins. She's in a white dress. Innocence, right? And here the proletariat and the petite bourgeois. They're all together. Look at the flag. And what's coming? The big moment. The Cossacks are coming. Parasol again. And suddenly. And what is a Cossack? Well, according to Wikipedia, which we all know does not lie, a Cossack is a member of a group of predominantly East Slavic-speaking Orthodox Christian people who became known as members of a democratic, self-governing, semi-military communities originating in the Pontic steppe north of the Black Sea. The Cossacks in the southern Ukraine were particularly known for being especially loyal to the Tsar. So that's why they're the boogeyman hen here. Let's look at how Eisenstein arranged his favorite sequence, shall we? Quote, in the first place, noticing the frenzied condition of the people and the masses that are portrayed, let us go on to find what we are looking for in structural and compositional indications. Let us concentrate on the line of movement. There is, before all else, a chaotic close-up rush of figures. And then, as chaotic rush of figures in long shot, then the chaos of movement changes to a design. The rhythmic descending feet of the soldiers. Tempo increases. Rhythm accelerated. In this acceleration of downward rushing movement, there is a suddenly upsetting opposite movement upward. The breakneck 
movement of the mass downward leaps over into a slowly solemn movement upward of the mother's lone figure carrying her dead son. Mass. Break. Breakneck speed. Downward. And then, suddenly, the lone figure. Upward, returning to the downward. Rhythm accelerates. Tempo increases. One, two, one, two, three, four, five, cut. One, cut. One, cut. One, cut. One, two, three, four, cut. One, cut. Intertitle. One, cut. One, two, cut. One, two, three, four, cut. One, cut. One, cut. One, two, three, four, five, six, cut. So now as the crowd is rushing down the staircase in fear of their lives, we see the mother of the fallen boy go against the grain of traffic here, and in her grief she's going to face the murderers of her child. And this really reminds me of that famous photograph of that brave man who in 1989 stood in front of a tank in Tiananmen Square during the Goddess of Democracy protest. She really is going to face down her czarist oppressors. Look at this confrontation. Look at this coordination. Isn't it amazing? And she looks pissed, absolutely pissed. And you're supposed to take her side here. You're with this woman. You're pissed too. But it's only because of the context you see who did this to her child because Eisenstein showed you with a cut. And most of the time he's saying in a single line of sight from left to right. Occasionally he'll cut to a crane shot from the right-hand side of the staircase. But mainly you see the action from the left to the right. And he is purposefully not showing you the faces of the murderers like he is showing you the close-up of the victims. And that last shot was the only one that was centered. It's because... She's squaring off with them, right? And how can you not empathize with this woman now? If you don't, you must not have a heart. And look at these long shadows casting down on her. They're so foreboding. And what are the Cossacks thinking? Well, if she's here, she must be a rebel, including her kid. And what do we do with rebels? We shoot them. And the cuts slowed down there for a bit, but now they're going to speed up again. Cossacks. A bad word in the Russian language. And Eisenstein describes the scene further. He says, quote, Suddenly the tempo of the running crowd leaps over into the next category of speed, into a rolling baby carriage. It propels the idea of rushing downward into the next dimension, from rolling as understood figuratively into the physical act of rolling. This is not merely a change in levels of tempo. This is furthermore, as well, a leap and display method from the figurative to the physical taking place within the representation of rolling. Close-ups leap over into long shots, chaotic movement of a mass into rhythmic movement of the soldiers. 
one aspect of moving speed is rushing people into the next state of the same theme of moving speed of the rolling baby carriage. Movement downward into movement upward. And what does the baby represent? Well, the new Russian state, of course. Many volleys of rifles into one shot from one of the battleship's guns. Stride by stride, a lean leap from dimension to dimension. A leap from quality to quality so that in the final counting, rather than in a separate episode, the baby carriage, the whole method of exposing the entire event likewise accomplished its leap. Narrative type of exposition is replaced in the montage by the rousing of the stone lion and transferred to the concentrated structure of imagery. Visually rhythmic prose leaps over into visually poetic speech. And the reason they're focusing on the Odessa theater is that's where the military was meeting, but they missed them. So in a nutshell, what Eisenstein is trying to say here in a bottle is that this film, not just this film, all film, is a literary expression. And it's no different than a Monet painting or a book by Tolstoy. Film is literature. You can give it themes and you can make images mean something according to those themes. And you use the cut to do that. So your cherubs are gone, your stone lions are gone, and what are we left with? Darkness. And just in case you're interested, those steps, the Potemkin steps, back then they were called the Richelieu steps because there was a statue of Cardinal Richelieu at the top, and they connected the port of Odessa to the city, and they even do that to this day. It has 10 landings and 192 granite steps that go 465 feet. The base of the staircase is 70 feet wide, and the top is 41. So it narrows to the statue at the top, which overlooks the port. After the movie, they were called the Odessa Steps, but in Odessa, they're called the Potemkin Steps. I know that it may seem spectacular to think that a Russian ship would fire on a Russian town, and maybe it's fantastic to think of this in modern terms. There's no way that an American officer or a cruiser or destroyer would ever give an order to, or take an order to fire on unarmed civilians on shore, even if they were riding. I believe that now. But during the Civil War, the American Civil War, there were draft riots in New York City in 1963, excuse me, in 1863. And the Navy was called in to shell the Lower East Side of Manhattan where the riots were taking place. And a lot of people were killed. Innocent people who had nothing to do with the riots. And that was only 40 years before Potemkin. And that happened in a Western democracy. So shit like this did happen in the past. And it would, like, it would happen in the future. 40 years after this film, the Ohio National Guard was trying to police a protest against the Vietnam War at Ohio State. And they shot into a crowd of unarmed civilians and they killed four college students. Not a single one of them was involved in a protest. And it took a lot of compromise and desperate pleas to get the National Guard to stop killing young Americans who just wanted to go to school. So maybe this isn't that far removed. But this whole sequence is supposed to emphasize how the crew behaved like good little revolutionaries. And they did form a Soviet on the ship. The Soviet did discuss all matters on the ship. They did put an officer in charge of the ship. 
but that officer was responsible to the Soviet. Then all the other sympathizers were either locked up or jettisoned. Eisenstein had a theory about almost everything, and he had a theory about title cards. Up until Potemkin, title cards were just used to either convey dialogue or a place or an idea, or at the very most, they were used to separate scenes. Eisenstein had a different purpose. He actually used the cards to pace the film, not just divide it. So there's a rhythm in the beats with the cards. Metric cutting. He's timing you. And to cut the film really dilutes this power. The only thing I've seen like this that can be remotely compared to it is Tony Scott's film Man on Fire with Denzel Washington. That film takes place in Mexico and there's a lot of Spanish subtitles. And rather than force you to take your eyes off the action and the drama of what's happening and look at the bottom of the screen, Scott places his subtitles right smack dab in the middle of the screen next to the action. He paces the words out instead of throwing them up all at once and making you rush through them. It's very inventive. Check how we're slowing down here when people are sleeping, right? One, two, cut, one, two, three, cut, one, two, three, cut, one, two, three, four, cut, one, two, three, four, cut, one, two, cut, one, two, cut, one, two, three, Four, cut one, cut one, cut one, two, cut one, two. See, now he's quickening it. So people were sleeping. Now he's up the pace. People are on guard. He's trying to get you used to something that's going to happen next. Now the story of the battleship Potemkin does not end here. They couldn't take Odessa, so they decided to flee. And when they did, they confronted a small flotilla from the Black Sea Fleet. And in this amazing confrontation, which Eisenstein is going to dramatize very well here, Matyushenko decided not to fire on his fellow sailors unless they fired on him first. And that was an enormous risk. But he was willing to think that they would not fire on him and his crew. So this brotherhood really took over. And the other ships did not fire on Potemkin either. And that was a signal that what happened on Potemkin could happen on any ship in the fleet. And in fact, it did happen on one other ship. And other ships were completely unreliable. In fact, in order to track down Potemkin, there was an admiral who staffed an entire ship with officers. No sailors. And they just went off to go find the Potemkin. And they never did. And it was a good thing for them that they were never found. Because the Potemkin could have killed them all. And the officers of all the other ships just went apeshit. In this confrontation, one of the captains shot himself on the bridge rather than live on a ship in which he had no command. So the Potemkin ran this gauntlet out to sea to get out of Odessa. And it ran right in between the fleet that they were trying to escape from. They went to head to head with them and all the ships had their guns locked and loaded. It was high drama. They could have all died, but they didn't. The fleet didn't fire on them. And the Potemkin made off. But it did not have it easy. It sailed to Romania and then across to Theopolis and then back to Romania. 
And eventually they made a deal with the Romanian government that the loyal sailors could go back. The ones who repented could turn themselves in and ask for mercy. But the battleship was surrendered to Romania, and the rebels got safe haven there. But there were, of course, Russian spies all over the city, and Matyushenko did not feel safe there. Other Potemkin sailors pooled their money and purchased a train ticket for him to go to Geneva, where he met Lenin and was over the Okhrana surveillance the whole time. The Okhrana was like the, the Russian spy network outside of Russia. Matt Yushchenko was not a communist, like I said before, and he never joined any revolutionary cause that was specific, despite meeting just about anyone who was anyone in the ref- revolutionary movement inside and outside of Russia. He re-entered Russia under a fake identity to continue the revolution, and he was discovered in 1907. And he was tried, and he was executed. The film itself has such an unfortunate history. It was banned in Germany at first. Then Eisenstein made a cut to be shown in Germany. 52 shots of 100 feet were cut. But it came out to great acclaim. Bakulinchuk's assassination was chained to just another battle casualty, which was unfortunate. And I think they did that to cool the heels of all the communists in Germany. Joseph Goebbels, who was the propaganda minister in Nazi Germany, he loved this film. He was always trying to make a German Potemkin. I don't think that he succeeded. But he did very similar things to the Nazi film system that Russia had done. Russia's film distribution system was non-existent outside of Russia, and it wasn't even very good inside Russia. Germany, on the other hand, had a superior distribution system. By the 20s, they were pumping out fantastic hits like Caligari and Destiny, and they had a great network set up. So Goskino, the Russian film company, made a deal with Prometheus, which was a German film company that optioned the European rights to show and distribute Potemkin. And they cut deals to show it all over Europe where it proved to be very, very popular. The surprising thing was it was more popular in Russia than American movies. And these were the days before sound, mind you. So all you had to do to translate a film was to change the title cards or just eliminate them altogether. Douglas Fairbanks had a film running around called Robin Hood, and it was extremely popular all over the world. The world knew his name. But in Russia, Potemkin kicked Fairbanks off the screen. And it wasn't until the Communist Party said so. It was because the Russian audiences would rather see Potemkin over Robin Hood. And that was a big deal. That was when the negative was in Germany and the prints were coming back to Russia were few and far between. Because Prometheus could make more money off a film in Europe than they could in Russia. So it was hard to see in Russia. And at the same time, the only thing people were interested in seeing in Russia was Potemkin. Fairbanks even went to go see Potemkin with Mary Pickford in Berlin and he bought a copy and he brought it back with him to the States when he went home and he showed it privately in his Hollywood home to his friends and his industry people and they all fawned over it for decades. Hollywood went berserk over this. David O. Selznick was astonished at it, right? One of the biggest Hollywood producers at the time. But it was never officially released until after the Second World War. 
And after World War II, the original negative made it back into Russia, but it was heavily edited. So the most popular version found was in the public domain and is the version most people have seen. But it is the least accurate version. The timing of the film was slowed down so they could match it with certain sounds and added dialogue and a new soundtrack. And this dramatically threw off the pacing of the film and it wasn't corrected for decades. Top speed. Just like the editing, right? Now I hope that you're watching the Kino Lorber version which has 1,374 shots inserted and it includes everything the Germans cut and thus everything missing in various cuts distributed in Europe. And this is the most comprehensive, complete, and accurate reordering, rendering, and replacing of the intertitles. This is an important film for so many reasons. There's a subject matter, and the way the subject is cut, montage and editing, solving specific problems in cinema. Battleship Potemkin today is known as the super art house film, and only weirdos with French accents talk about Potemkin. This is completely different from when Potemkin came out. This movie was extremely popular all over the world. It caused a shockwave. Eisenstein was a household name because of this film. And for the rest of his career, he would be known as not just that brilliant director, but that director who did Battleship Potemkin. So it's not just the subject matter. The 1905 revolution was so very important as a step to the Bolshevik revolution of 1917. Many people could not stomach the communist revolution, had absolute sympathy for what the Russian people were experiencing under autocratic rule, but mainly the popularity of the movie really rests on Eisenstein's really progressive use of editing. Here, for example, the metric timing of the film slowly increases over time as the Potemkin gets closer and closer to the fleet for a huge confrontation. And as we get closer and closer, the editing gets tighter and tighter, and we're expecting a huge battle and a huge finale, and he's gearing you up for that. Even the music is increasing to make you feel more tense. And you can do your shot count to see at the beginning of the scene and at the end of the scene how long the takes are. They start off very long and they end very short. Sometimes the cuts are not even a second, right? This is the longest cut, them bringing the guns around. One, two, cut. One, two, three, four, cut. That was long. One, two, three, four, cut. One against all. Red flag. Two seconds. Cut. One. Cut. One. Cut. One. Cut. One. Two. Three. Four. Cut. Right? Sailors are getting ready to die. And now the tension is so bad that you would have people in the theater on edge of their seats. They would be swooning. Some would be passing out. This would be a very emotional moment. And despite the static shots, we see sailors gearing up and ready to die. We see guns rotating. We are looking down the barrel, literally. And listen to the pace of the music. Listen to the beat. It's almost like you can hear the flag wave. 
And you don't need to see this movement because with montage, you can artificially produce movement and you don't need to rely on your senses because Eisenstein said that in silent cinema, you could actually hear movements and see sound. Maybe you could see the 10,000 high explosive fragment shells Potemkin had, enough to destroy the fleet, enough to destroy Odessa. And in this montage, you get a sense of the feeling of what he was doing, of what he was producing. He was eliciting emotion. He's creating fear inside you and hope. And you're not sure which one is going to win out because everyone has a finger on the trigger in one false move and everyone is dead. So what's it going to be? Read the signals flags. What do you see? Hope wins out over fear. And what more can you say? It's the most famous Soviet film ever made. It's the most famous Russian movie ever made. It's the most famous communist movie ever made. It's one of the most famous silent films ever made. It was produced by the People's Commissariat for Education. It was shot by the State Institute for Cinematography under Edouard Thies. It was directed by the most famous Russian director who ever lived. He was probably the most high-profile filmmaker in Europe during the silent era, the most high-profile homosexual from the Soviet Union, and none of it mattered because of this film. It premiered at the 100th anniversary of the 1905 revolution in February 2005 and the 80th anniversary of the premiere at the Bolshoi Theater, which was the same night. And in case you were wondering who Potemkin was for the past two hours, the battleship Potemkin was named after a beloved minister of Catherine the Great, and it was the most advanced battleship in the fleet, like I said before, right? And it had the bravest soldiers. And what did we see on their faces? Not fear, hope. Hope for a Russia free of the Tsar. It's too bad a Russia free was too much to ask for. Because it's a whole century later and Russia still isn't free. Thanks for hanging out with me while we watched Battleship Potemkin. If you enjoyed this commentary, please go to iTunes or whichever app you're using and write a review. If you didn't like it, drop me a line at thatdylandavis at gmail.com to tell me why. All music on this podcast is written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail. You can find her on iTunes, Twitter, and SoundCloud. The Super 70 Podcast is found wherever you find podcasts. And you can find me, my books, and my blog at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time in the Hall of the Mountain King.